All right, so we're continuing our series, the Sermon on the Mount, and let me just first mention that there is a typo in the bulletin. Um, sorry, this is a serious passage, and I don't mean to be, you know. Anyway, it says dictum mune pactum. Um, so that sounds like the past tense of what a cat thinks, you know, when it's really serious or something, or what a cat does when it's really serious. It's actually supposed to read dictum meum pactum, okay, which means my word is my bond in Latin. So, sorry, <laughs> just to clear that up. Okay, um, so 20 years ago or so, there was an article in Washington Post called Perjury, a Tough Case to Make. And I'll read just a few paragraphs from that um, article. So the crime of perjury is more complicated than making a statement that is not true. Perjury is really hard to prove, said Jim Cole, a veteran Washington public integrity lawyer. When you try a perjury case, you're splitting legal hairs. They are very technical cases. It comes down to what the person said, what they understood themselves to be saying, and what they understood the question to be. As prosecutors, we encounter people who lie under oath all the time, acknowledged Randolph Sengel, the Commonwealth's attorney in Alexandria. I don't mean to sound cynical, but a day doesn't go by when somebody doesn't come to court and bend it a little. If you were determined to prosecute every falsehood people made in court, that is all you would be doing. Blatantly false statements often go unprosecuted. There's lying in criminal cases all the time, said one longtime prosecutor. Defendants lie. They bring in alibi witnesses who lie, but we usually will not prosecute them for perjury. In the Clinton impeachment case, attorney Kenneth Starr alleged that the president committed perjury when he used semantic arguments to deny a sexual relationship with Monica Lewinsky. While the president had, has admitted making misleading statements, he and his lawyers steadfastly denied that he committed perjury. In a now infamous statement, then-President Bill Clinton told the grand jury that one of his denials in the deposition was literally truthful because the question was asked in the present tense, and indeed, by the time of the deposition, his intimate relationship with Lewinsky had long since ended. And so Clinton said, it depends on what the meaning of the word is, is. Maybe you remember that statement. So words matter. And our hearts matter, which is where those words come from. So honest with ourselves and with God and with others matters. And our text for this morning touches on all of these issues. And so we need to be careful. We can be masters of obfuscation and, you know, these little gymnastics to, you know, no, oh, I'm telling the truth. So we need to be honest with ourselves and know our hearts and honest with God because he wants us to live true and speak the truth. So um, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount. Our verses for this morning are chapter 5, verses 31 to 37, um, which hits two different issues, Okay. Divorce and remarriage, a brief statement by Jesus here. Tyler read chapter 19, which is a more expanded version um, of that theme in the book of Matthew. 
And then verses 33 to 37, which has to do with oath-taking. And then you see in chapter 23, where, chapter, where Tyler read um, some of the ways in which the Pharisees played games with oath-taking. Um, so we'll refer back to that in a little bit here. But here's the point. 31 and 32 is kind of hard to know where to put it. Um, we could do it on its own, but um, it goes with the previous section because Jesus is talking about how lust is really an issue of adultery in the heart. And then here, he's talking about adultery as a reason for um, breaking the marriage covenant, okay, in 31 and 32. Or you could see that it goes with the following section because marriage is keeping vows, right? And then Jesus goes on to talk about um, not swearing falsely and, and not... Um, you know, speaking empty oaths, okay? So we're going to take it together with this oath-taking, and there's an outline in the bulletin, and you can follow along also on the screens here if that's helpful, all right? So it almost acts like a hinge. Verses 32, 31 and 32 almost act like a hinge. Um, it relates to what goes before and also to what comes after, all right? So first point, divorce and remarriage in verses 31 and 32. So Jesus says, it was also said. He's using this pattern. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. Okay? Um, and so he's getting at the heart of the law and making sure that people don't um, embrace the ways in which the Pharisees, the religious leaders, had twisted the intent of the law. Okay? Or abused the intent of the law. Or muted the intent of the law. So he says, it was also said... Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So first off, we can ask, where was it said? Verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Well, that quote comes from Deuteronomy 24. Okay, verse 1 um, is up here. So, when a, a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and we'll stop there, but there's a lot more conditions to this situation, a lot more ifs. It's a very exceptional case, okay? And Jesus makes it really clear later on in Matthew 19 that Moses didn't command divorce. He provided it as a concession, Okay? So the certificate of divorce was a concession due to the brokenness of this fallen world, sinful hearts, and obviously messed up marriages. Okay? So the original intention, actually, of Deuteronomy 24 was that divorce was permitted under circum certain circumstances, not prescribed. Okay? It was a concession, not a command. So Jesus clarifies that in Matthew 19. 
In fact, you could say that the certificate of divorce was actually originally intended to deter a husband from a knee-jerk reaction. So it was actually in protection of the wife. If this did happen, he was to give this certificate of divorce to actually give her freedom to remarry. Okay, so it, it actually protected her reputation. It, it guarded her reputation from rumors and stigma, okay, that it was the result of something less than adultery. Okay, again, this is, <laughs> this raises all kinds of questions, and, you know, this is not ideal. The whole point is, let's not misinterpret this is exactly what the Pharisees were doing. They were misinterpreting this statement. They viewed it as, you know, almost like carte blanche justification for divorce. And Jesus is saying, oh, no, no, no. But even in Deuteronomy 24, see, if she was guilty of adultery, she could be stoned. But if it was less than that and she was given this certificate, in a sense what it did was it protected her from the stigma and rumors that it might be adultery, okay? So, so this is, again, not a, not a wonderful scenario, but let's at least note the original intention, okay? The other thing we need to know is that Jesus is speaking into a time where there was a debate raging between two different rabbinic schools, okay? So two schools of thought regarding divorce, the rabbinic school of Shimei, okay? And they took a strict interpretation so this indecency, there's lots of questions. What did that mean? Um, it was interpreted as a grave violation like adultery, something like that, that level. There was also the school of Hillel, okay? And they held a very lax interpretation. Maybe you've heard preachers mention this in, in the past or read it somewhere. Theirs was actually the common view of the time. The Pharisees were fans of this interpretation, and that indecency could be something as trivial as, as her burning his food. So if we put Matthew 5 together with Matthew 19, Jesus is actually refusing to get embroiled in this Shimei Hillel debate. They're, they're trying to catch him in his words. They're trying to set him up, in Matthew 19 at least. But he's, he's not going there. So... Deuteronomy 24, indecency, probably something, quote-unquote, lesser than adultery. Otherwise, she could be put to death. But it was a concession on account of hardness of heart. It wasn't a command. Which is why, in Matthew 19, Jesus goes back to the original intention of marriage in Genesis 2. And his intention, when he's speaking of marriage and divorce and so forth in Matthew 5 or Matthew 19 is to emphasize the seriousness of the marriage covenant. So he is certainly putting his finger on the moral laxity that would dismiss a wife on less than adultery grounds. He is not siding with the Hillel school at all. So his point actually Again, in chapter 5, let's just note what he is saying. There are other places where we need to qualify things or make, you know, statements about exceptions or whatnot. But here, Jesus' intention is to say that divorcing a wife is not okay. In fact, 
the emphasis here is on not the moral weakness of the woman in Matthew 5, but on the culpability of the man to put her in this vulnerable spot. Okay, so the ESV translates the phrase, makes her commit adultery, but the voice of that verb is passive. Okay, so sorry for the, you know, grammar lesson here, but um, New Testament scholar Craig Blomberg, he writes this, in English, we don't say to be adulterated, at least not if we mean that someone else has committed adultery against us. You will search in vain for any examples of such a passive verb being translated actively. So that rules out the common, makes her commit adultery. So actually the updated NIV translates it this way, um, and I think it's a good translation, makes her the victim of adultery. But there is an exception here that Jesus references, okay? So there's lots of questions. It's a little tiny section, but it's got all kinds of things tied to it and, and um, questions that it raises. So he's referring to Deuteronomy 24. This is what was said. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality. What is that referring to? Okay, so the Greek word is porneia, okay, the word from which we get our English word pornography. Well, what does it refer to? Well, in the Old Testament, it's used to refer to visiting a prostitute, incest, adultery, although there's also a separate word for adultery, homosexuality, and bestiality. Okay, so it is kind of a broad term. It's like a summary term for sexual immorality, which is why it gets translated that way, okay? So the point of what Jesus is saying is that sexual immorality of this serious sort breaks the marital covenant. So if she has committed porneia, or if he has, this goes both ways, then divorce doesn't cause the victim to commit adultery. Adultery has already taken place. Does that make sense? And by implication, if that victim spouse who is divorced remarries, the man who marries her does not commit adultery because her former marriage covenant is dead and therefore no longer binding. So, we can hardly address all the potential scenarios that life, you know, that, that we see in the world around us, in the church. Okay, it's a complicated subject. Um, we would have to take lots of different texts into consideration. Um, so, certainly here, sexual immorality, this kind of infidelity, sexual infidelity, is just cause for divorce, okay? In 1 Corinthians 7, you have the desertion, hard-hearted desertion of an unbeliever. Um, let's say two people get married, one becomes a Christian, and the other person finally just, you know, leaves. Well, you can't save them, you can't, Paul says, let them go. You're called to peace. You can only do so much. Okay? So there are kind of the typical exceptions, okay? There's also lots of difficult 
cases. Again, we're not going to get into all of that. Um, so we need to let the main point that Jesus makes here be our main point and focus, okay? And there's some pastoral concerns that come along with that. So this isn't just something that should be on my heart. I think this is something that needs to be on all of our hearts as Christians if we're going to follow Jesus and love others in this broken world that has lots of brokenness all around us. So on the one hand, we want to strongly uphold in the church, in the body of Christ, the sanctity and covenantal significance of marriage. Remember Matthew 19, Jesus says, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So we should uphold and protect the sacred covenant of marriage. I mean, it's obviously under attack from a variety of different angles today, certainly in our culture. If you look at history and some of the statistics, in 1910, one in every 10 marriages ended in divorce. 1920, one in seven. 1940, one in six. 1960, one in four. 1970, one in three. Today, roughly one of two. And just for what this is worth, there is the common claim, you'll hear it all the time, the divorce rate is nearly the same among Christians, right? That's actually not true um, because the best statistics and surveys and so forth, sociological studies that have been done, if you filter, just put the, put the kind of bottom of the barrel filter of committed Christian as opposed to nominal Christian, it drops down to about 38%, which again <laughs> is not great, but it's different than 50%, okay? Still very concerning, but um, you always have to be careful with statistics. So the focus here is this is really serious. We in the church need to, to uphold the sacredness of marriage. We need, to, we need to say it is just not okay for us to get dissatisfied and, and disappointed and just one out and look for an excuse. Well, I just don't love him or her anymore. Or we've grown apart. We don't share anything in common anymore. We're just cohabitating. I'm tired of being the one to try to make things better. He or she will never change. We're just incompatible. Stuff like that. Jesus is saying everyone who divorces his or her spouse except on the ground of sexual immorality makes him or her commit adultery. And whoever marries that one commits adultery. This is really serious, which is why in Matthew 19, the disciples say, whoa, maybe it's better not to marry. They are feeling the weight of taking this relationship, this covenantal union so seriously. So we need in the church to take marriage more seriously. How can we do that? Well, there's lots of ways we could answer that question, right? But let me just mention one. By going back to the Beatitudes. How about that? Just in a contextual sense here. What if, what if it was normal? What if what saturated the marriages in this church were that husbands and wives were poor in spirit, recognizing their need before God, depending on him, just clinging to him for daily grace, mourning over sin, 
not minimizing their sin and maximizing pointing out the other, the spouse's sin, but owning it and grieving over it. Purity of heart. Peacemakers. What if we were peacemakers? What if we were meek? What if this is what characterized our marriages? Do you see how that would have a massive impact on the, not, not only the stability of marriages, but the sweetness, the life, the health of marriages? Okay? This is exactly what Jesus is getting at. He's getting at heart-level righteousness. Remember back in chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, which is like a heading over all of these different antitheses. You heard this, but I say this. Look back at at, uh, Matthew 5. He says, Don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is serious stuff. We need to take these things seriously. So, sadly, this is not the norm. Like living out the Beatitudes in marriage, which leads to so much trouble. Okay? So, we need to hear this. We need to take this seriously. Lord, help me not deal lightly, flippantly with this covenantal union. Lord, praying for our kids, the next generation, that the the church would tell a different story with marriage, that we really would reflect the grace and truth of Jesus with our lives and with our marriages because what God has joined together, let no one separate. So, on the one hand... I said these are some pastoral concerns. This, this ought to be our concern in the church. On the one hand, we have got to treat marriage with the seriousness that Jesus gives it here. I mean, what is more serious than our marriages are supposed to be little parables of the gospel? That's the ultimate meaning of marriage. It's invested with so much glory. How can we treat that flippantly and lightly? We need to take it really seriously because husbands and wives have these roles to play in this dramatic representation of the gospel. So we've got to take it seriously. On the other hand, though, we in the church need to recognize that there are those who've been grievously hurt and left with terrible wreckage and pain that accompanies divorce. And God is compassionate and loving toward those victims. Of course, there's no, you know, sinless party in any marriage, but there are real scenarios where there is a perpetrator and a victim. And sometimes there's still this stigma in the church. The church should not be giving that stigma. God has compassion on those people, and so should we. Okay? And then also, again, on this other hand, we should say that divorce is not the unforgivable sin. So even if you went through a divorce without having biblical grounds for doing so in the past, 
there can be repentance and forgiveness and a clear conscience before God. You don't have to be relegated to like second-class citizenship in the kingdom if you have that kind of failure in the background. Again, we're living true and honest and open before God and others. Do you see how, like, you can see how if we, if we just say this and don't ever say this, you can have people that have false shame and guilt and stigma and all of this. But if we only say this, then maybe we're getting soft on the standards and, and you know, we're just going to kind of float along in this culture that minimizes the seriousness of marriage and what it means. So, how can we say all of those things without one of them unsaying the other? <laughs> like, we want to guard. See, we're saying this on the first side, you know, marriage is the sacred union. We need to take it so seriously. Saying something like that guards the heart that might be tempted to say it's easier to ask forgiveness than permission. It's a dangerous place to be. We need to listen to Jesus and trust him, not look for a way to justify our unbelief. But we've all got a past. <laughs> we've all got regrets and mistakes. And so we also have to have a place for people to have mistakes and failure in their past, and they can be full-orbed members without stigma in the body of Christ. So, there's so many scenarios, obviously. Can't speak to them all. Plenty of, you know, situations that arise, um, and they just require the wisdom of godly leaders to process through those things, okay? But we want to be people of conviction and people of sensitivity and compassion, okay? So, Sam Storms, I think, will we'll leave this point by... Um, Quoting Sam Storms, uh, he's a pastor now, used to teach at Wheaton College Systematic Theology. He says this, so here's the problem. How do I honor and esteem marriage without dishonoring and defaming those who have experienced divorce? And how do I encourage and affirm divorced people without appearing to minimize the importance of honoring one's marital commitment and vows? Our challenge is to mingle the call to obedience with the tears of compassion and to be both tender to those who have failed without compromising the high standards of Scripture. I think that's well said. All right, so let's move on to the second part of our text now. Um, verses 33 to 37, simply speak and live the truth. All right, so we're, look there in verse 33. Matthew 5, verse 33. <clears throat> Again, you have heard it said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. All right, so where does this come from? Probably a combination of the following two texts and maybe a couple others thrown in. Um, so Leviticus 19, 12 says, you shall not swear by my name falsely. See the first phrase? mirrors that almost exactly, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. 
And then Numbers 30, verse 2, and there's several other texts like this. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Okay, so again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform the Lord to the Lord what you have sworn. And then he's going to say, but I say to you. Now, he is not saying that these Old Testament texts are untrue. He is addressing an abuse or a misunderstanding of them. Okay, so what is the point of what Jesus is addressing? We can understand a little bit better as we hear what he says in the following verses. Look at verse 34. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Okay, so the passage that Tyler read, chapter 23, we see how the Pharisees had created this complicated system of oath-taking, you know, that created essentially a bunch of loopholes. So you know what a loophole is? It's this ambiguity or inadequacy in a system such as a law or security which can be used to circumvent or otherwise avoid the purpose implied or explicitly stated of the system. Okay, so the ones in chapter 23 are pretty obvious. There was, there was one that was well known that's kind of silly, but this gives you an idea of what Jesus was dealing with. The Pharisees basically said that swearing by Jerusalem was not binding, but swearing toward Jerusalem was. I mean, it just got that, you know, silly. They were just playing word games, okay? So Jesus essentially just closes all the loopholes. He makes it clear that none of their oaths were outside the realm of accountability to God. Because if you make it by Jerusalem, well, that's God's city. If you make it by the altar, well, that's an altar that, you know, they're worshiping God. Like, everything is before God, ultimately. So why, like, we probably don't do this very much, so we might just wonder, why in the world would someone make an oath in the first place? I mean, what's happening when somebody makes an oath? Um, quote Sam Storms again here. He says, in an oath, a person calls upon a thing, a power, or another person greater than himself, usually God, to bear witness to the truth of what he says and to punish him if he breaks his word or if what he says proves to be false. So in saying this, what's being said by the Pharisees was that you have to fulfill your vows to the Lord, but if your vows were made to or by something else, then it wasn't so necessary to fulfill them. So they thought these oaths by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem were somehow not as binding as oaths made to God or with God as witness. So if they didn't use the name of God, then, you know, there's this loophole. So they wanted the emphasis of the oath without the obligation of the oath. It's kind of like raising your right hand and crossing your fingers behind your back. So they wanted to milk the oath for the benefit of, you know, this is really serious. People should trust me, um, but not accept the responsibility, the obligation. So the question is, does this mean that Christians should never take an oath? What do you think? 
I mean, Jesus' statement there is pretty bald, right? Do not take an oath at all. Does that mean we shouldn't take an oath in a courtroom? Like if we're asked to put our hand on the Bible and swear to tell the truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God? Or how about marriage vows before God and these witnesses? Well, I think it seems clear if you look at it in the context of the whole Bible, oftentimes um, Jesus is saying here, no oath should be taken like the ones the Pharisees are taking, okay? The ones that kind of empty those promises of their meaning, okay? So we actually see Paul taking a vow in Acts 18. He also calls God to witness against him. Um, 2 Corinthians 1.23, I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming to Corinth. Philippians 1.8, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Okay, so the point is, he wasn't trying to puff up his statement, but it's really empty. He's speaking the truth, and he has no fear to say that before God because it's true. Or if you are making a marriage vow, you are actually called to just let your yes be yes. <laughs> right? Before God and these witnesses, you really are saying, my yes is going to be yes. You're not trying to, you know, play games with that. So the real point is that there's no loopholes. Okay? Any vow is a vow before God. And if it is your heart intent to keep that vow, I don't think in normal everyday life we should be taking vows. But Paul wanted to underline, listen, I yearn for you all. I really love you all. God is witness. And I have no fear in saying that because it's truly how I feel. So, it doesn't seem like all oaths are out of bounds. Otherwise, Paul is in sin clearly here, and the Bible gives no indication that that was wrong for him to do that. Okay? But the point is, none of this loophole-type oath-taking. So then Jesus follows these prohibitions with a very simple, profound command. So if we're not supposed to do that, what are we supposed to do? Look at verse 34 and then go straight down to verse 37. He says, But I say to you, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So as the saying goes, say what you mean and mean what you say. Anything beyond that comes from evil. Okay, Satan is the father of lies. He's the deceiver who masquerades as an angel of light. He uses just enough truth for his lies and his deceitful schemes to work, to be believable, right? He is the original spin doctor. So when we lie or shade the truth or spin the truth or slant the truth or speak out of both sides of our mouth or fail to keep our word or whatever, or when we use truth in service of our selfish desires to win, to avoid consequence, to shift the blame. We are speaking Satan's native tongue. All of that is from evil. 
But we're here sitting at Jesus' feet listening to the Sermon on the Mount because we want to follow Jesus, right? So if we're going to live in his kingdom under the King of Kings, we've got to have this honesty with ourselves and with God and with others. We want to live true and speak the truth. We've got to turn away from lies and spin and half-truths. Remember how Jesus started his earthly ministry. The first thing he said, we've mentioned this week after week, chapter 4, verse 17, after his baptism, he starts his public ministry and says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we've all sinned with our speech. We've all lied. We've all shaded the truth. We've all slanted, spun. So we need to see ourselves in the mirror of the word and say, oh, Lord, I want to live true and I want to speak the truth so we can repent and follow Jesus this morning with our hearts and with our speech. God is true. He cannot lie. Jesus said, I am the true and living way. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. The Spirit of God is the Spirit of truth. So, if we are trusting Jesus, following him, it inevitably will affect the way that we speak. We're not looking for loopholes. We're not spinning and manipulating the truth for our own advantage. Again, in all areas of life, whether it's that argument with your spouse or whether it's at work, We speak the truth because we want to live the truth, because we are following the way, the truth, and the life. We're following Jesus. So when we live this way, when we have this commitment here to simply say yes or no, to say what we mean and mean what we say, we don't have to couch our statements with, I kid you not. Honestly, Oh, so wait, what, what were you doing before? Seriously. So are you always not serious, but now you're, okay, now you're, oh, oh, here, now, now you're being serious? Um, I don't know, maybe that one, we should let that one go because, you know, it's okay to joke around a little bit. Anyway, to tell you the truth, isn't it funny how easy that comes out? To tell you the truth, what does that mean about what, what you were saying before? Or, I don't know if anybody in here says this kind of stuff, but I mean, lots of people talk this way. I swear on all that's holy. <laughs> I swear on my mother's grave, you know? Or another way this can play out. Have you ever run across this psalm? Or, uh, psalm, Proverbs, Proverbs 26, 18. Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I was only joking. There was more truth in that statement than you want to acknowledge, and so you just kind of pass it off by, oh, I was just joking. Or we say something true, and the result is bad, and so we back off, oh, I was just kidding. So this German theologian, Helmut Thielicke, said this. He said, whenever I utter the formula, I swear by God, I am really saying, now I'm going to mark off an area of absolute truth and put walls around it to cut off from the muddy floods of untruthfulness and irresponsibility that ordinarily overruns my speech. 
And Jesus is saying, no, that's not how to live. He's calling us to follow him, to simply let our yes be yes and our no be no, to keep our word even when it's inconvenient or we've given our word and something better comes up. And then we give excuses, I mean reasons, why we can't come now. We need to be careful about these things. We need to be honest with ourselves. Do you see? Living wide open. Honest with ourselves, honest with God, honest with others. Jesus is calling us to follow him, to trust him, to speak and live the truth. Remember what he said, chapter 5, verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Here's the bottom line. The whole earth is a courtroom. If we lie to another human being, if we make false promises to other people, it's all happening before God. So guess what? We are all guilty of cosmic perjury. Thankfully, it doesn't end there, right? Thankfully, the Gospel of Matthew doesn't end just with Jesus' teaching. It ends with his death. Jesus, the true and living way, came and died for all of our lies, all of our spin, that we could be forgiven, that we could be made new from the inside out, learning to trust God and live true, following the true and living way. So truth-telling, it's a heart issue. We know this, right? I mean, Jesus said it elsewhere, for out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So change and growth in this area is not just a matter of word choice. Oh, I shouldn't say honestly now. I shouldn't say seriously now. Okay. It's a matter of heart change. It's a faith issue. It's a heart-level trust issue. Am I going to trust the God of truth and the truth of God? Lying is unbelief gone public, right? I mean, you know how this goes, right? If we say one thing and then there's pressure on you to go against your word and if you fold and do another thing or you slant the truth for the sake of your own personal advantage or protection, it's because we're not trusting God. We're taking matters in our own hands. We're thinking, if I don't, if I don't take this, He's not going to take care of me. My future's in jeopardy. So, again, Jesus is working on our hearts so that we trust him from the heart so that our righteousness is not just a veneer that's pasted on, but it's something that's worked by his grace from the inside out. It's called living by grace through faith in Jesus. And listen, this living by faith thing, following Jesus, God has done everything necessary and way beyond to win our confidence. God's word is his bond. And guess what? He went above and beyond in order to bolster our confidence, our faith in him. Did you know that God took an oath? 
we're going to close with Hebrews 6. And then we're going to share in the table together. So just see this. So Jesus took care of everything as far as all of our sin with our speech and let's say if there's marital sin as well, Jesus died to forgive us and cleanse us of all of that. Let's trust him. And then we need to walk forward in faith, trusting him and speak and live the truth. So does God give us good reason to trust him? Look at Hebrews 6, verses 13 to 18. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom he, to swear, God swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So God could, just, could have just said, here's the promise. He can't lie. He doesn't lie. He can't lie. That should have been good enough. But he wanted it to be so, he wanted us to be so sure. He wanted to convince us so deeply that God himself took an oath. Two unchangeable things, the promise and the oath. He desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, and he guaranteed it with an oath. So, if you've made a marriage vow, and it's hard, and sometimes you just want to bolt, can God give grace for you to keep your vow? Yes. If you are tempted to spin and lie and, you know, speak out of both sides of your mouth, we all can be tempted by this all the time, minimize, justify, you know, all these kind of verbal dancing sort of scenarios, verbal gymnastics, we can trust God. His word is his bond. He will be faithful. He will give us grace to walk forward in truth, living the truth, speaking the truth as we follow Jesus. All right? So if the men who are going to serve communion can come forward, I'll pray for us, and then we will distribute the elements. Father, you know each and every heart here and what we need to, to address, what we need to face, what we may need to 
be honest with before you and maybe with others as well. Lord, help us to examine ourselves now as we come to your table. If there is past sin and failure that we need to own and repent of, help us to do that. And also, Lord, would you assure us of your forgiveness and grace. If there is present need for grace to be faithful to marital commitments in the midst of difficulty, Lord, please give grace for that and hope and confidence in you. If there is there are ways in which we've been false to the truth and we're convicted of what we've said or failed to say, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be honest again with ourselves and with you and with those that we need to, to get that right with. We thank you that we can come to the table, the table that you have set by the blood of Jesus, by his broken body. And we are not here because of our righteousness, but we are here because of his righteousness. Because of him dying in our place so that we could be reconciled to you and have a seat at your table and with a desire to follow him and needing to follow him faithfully we come to the table to eat and drink to feed on Jesus to, to remember his work and to be reminded of all the promises that are ours in him that are yes and amen. You do not speak out of both sides of your mouth. You keep your promises and we can bank on your grace to walk forward following Jesus in whatever area of life where we are facing challenge and difficulty. Help us to trust you. Lord, feed us on your grace and truth now as we examine our hearts, as we prayerfully prepare to participate in the table. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.